Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, Protecting Project Pulp, and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 388. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a short day. Oh, lovely big sh- short story. Lovely big short story. We certainly have. I'll tell you what's coming to your show then. First up is Science News with Mr. JJ Campanella. Then we have our main fiction, which is Persephone Descending by Derek Kunskin. And right at the end, I want you to go right at the end, not right now, right at the end when we're finished and have a listen, because I've got a big announcement about next week's show as well. Big, my God, it's huge. So that's what's coming in today's show. Don't forget this show and our recently fantastic SovaCon was sponsored by Octagon Technology. 25 years in the kind of industry. How cool is that? Just amazing. 1995 and still going strong there today. Big thank you to Diane and Clive. Thank you so much. So first up is the science news. And like I say, it is our Mr. JJ Campanella, Jim Sir. Greetings and rectilinear diagons, my magnanimously serapacious listeners, and welcome to this May 2015 Science News Update. I'm your host for this seriously hot mess of a science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. I've got some good stuff for you tonight, ladies and gentlemen. You just hold on tight. Sorry, I have no idea where that came from. First story of the night. A world's first, 
The world's first completely warm-blooded fish was reported in the journal Science a couple of weeks ago. Dr. Nicholas Wegner and his group at the NOAA Fisheries Southwest Science Center in San Diego wrote up the finding. The opa, or moonfish, is an oval-shaped denizen of the deep that at first glance seems to be a sluggish and slow-moving fish, especially given its cold-water habitat and its rather ungainly body design. The fish is flat and round, with relatively small fins and bright red-orange and yellow scales. The opa is also big. Wait, no, I meant opa. Opa. The opa is also big, with a diameter of a good three to four feet. You do not expect a big, sluggish fish to be warm-blooded. Well, actually, you don't really expect any fish to be warm-blooded, for that matter. But Wagner has revealed this beautifully colored creature to be, quote, the first fully warm-blooded fish that circulates heated blood throughout its body, much like mammals and birds, giving it a competitive advantage in the cold ocean depths, unquote. Wagner explains in a news release that, quote, the opa constantly flaps its fins in order to heat its blood and increase its metabolism, transforming the fish into a swift predator. Before this discovery, I was under the impression that this was a slow-moving fish, like most other in cold environments. But because it can warm its body, it turns out to be a very active predator that chases down agile prey like squid and can also migrate long distances." Unquote. Additionally, the opa has a unique gill design that allows for a phenomenon known as counter-current heat exchange. I actually remember this from my animal physiology class back in college. This process essentially involves warm blood leaving the body core to warm cold blood returning from the respiratory surfaces of the gills, where the oxygen is absorbed. Great white sharks are also considered warm-blooded, but not completely warm-blooded, there are limits, apparently, on its physiology, and the mechanisms are quite different from the opa. Wegter says, quote, There has never been anything like this seen in a fish's gills before. It works like a car's radiator. This is a cool innovation and gives fish a huge competitive edge. We believe that the elevated body temperature enhances muscle output and also boosts brain and eye function, unquote. I actually recognized this fish when I saw the photo. I remember it, though, by the moonfish title. When I was a kid, some gas stations used to give out animal trading cards when you bought gas. Yes, it was a long time ago. I remember the moonfish from among this very strange collection of animals that I had never seen before. I remember it's a solitary swimmer, and it gathers in groups only during spawning. It swims pretty deep down, 150 to 1,000 feet, and it's sometimes found in the vicinity of feeding tuna. According to the article, I guess that it's quite tasty and a serious prize for marine sports fishermen. The article says that last summer off Baja, California, several opa catches were logged, including one that weighed 180 pounds and was recently approved as the world record. Told you that opas were big. Sorry, opas. Boy, I'm going to get emails on this podcast, aren't I? Next story. What makes our brains male or female? Can we point to any particular genetic process that alters the brain during development to help ensure that we do not have gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is a disconnect between 
how we perceive our gender and our actual gender. Notice I'm trying to be very scientific in my phrasing here. I'm being careful because people are very offended on both sides of the aisle if you are not careful in your language. Dr. Bridget Nugent of the University of Maryland and her colleagues have written up results in Nature Neuroscience, and they did this last month, and the paper looks closely at genetics and the process of brain gender development. Just as in physical development by default, mammalian brains develop as female, with telltale structural elements that differ from a male brain. It's only when male hormones reach the brain, late in fetal development and shortly after birth, that the organ starts to take on a quote-unquote masculine look. Nugent says that it has been long assumed that the hormones must directly act on a host of genes to force these changes toward the masculine, but new research suggests otherwise. Her team now reports that gonadal steroids indirectly turn on brain masculinization genes by blocking DNA methylation throughout the genome. Now let's make a quick side note explanation of methylation and gene regulation for just a moment. DNA, as you guys remember, has four bases, G, A, T, and C. And it is possible to attach what are called methyl groups to the C base. Now, a methyl group is a very simple chemical molecule. It's a carbon with three hydrogens attached to it. That's all. Now, when methyls are attached to DNA, attached specifically to the C-type base, it changes the topology of the DNA, and the DNA squishes up like an accordion. This makes it very hard for the DNA to be read or the genes to be turned on. You can kind of compare it to a book. You take a book and you close its covers. The genes become inaccessible just like the words inside the book become inaccessible once the covers are closed. You've changed the topology of the book and you can't read it. Same thing. You change the topology of the DNA and the DNA can't be read. And the genes are essentially turned off in that area. Demethylation has the opposite effect. It changes topology, it opens up DNA, and it makes the genes accessible to being read. This is a complex, long-term regulation of genes. It can even occur across generations, and that has really only been discovered in the last 10 years or so. Back to the brain. For most of gestation, the developing brains of a male and a female fetus look pretty much the same. And that makes sense. After all, most of the functions of the brain are the same between the sexes. But around the time of birth, a male fetus gets a sudden rush of testosterone. And over the following days, some areas of the brain begin to change by getting larger or adding new populations of neurons. Nugent says, quote, There are some regions, especially those involved in sexual behaviors, that are extremely dimorphic. One particularly obvious change is that star-shaped astrocytes in the preoptic area, which have roles in male copulatory behavior, grow more branches, unquote. A few days after birth, the changes that make a brain male are established, and they persist until adulthood, when hormone levels rise again. Nugent says, quote, It is striking to us that a very brief and fleeting hormone surge in development is able to completely program sex differences in the brain, It turns out that methylation is the key to all this, 
Remember I said that methylation is a long-term regulatory system. Well, Nugent looked at exactly that. They wondered whether epigenetic changes affecting the methylation of genes could be responsible for flipping the switch between a male and female brain. They measured levels of DNA methyltransferase, the enzyme that adds the methyl groups to the DNA to turn down expression in male and female rat pups, as well as female pups treated with hormones to induce masculinization. A few days after birth, the activity of DNA methyltransferase was drastically lower in both the male and the masculinized female pups. When Nugent and her group looked at global methylation levels in the pups, they found that females had nearly twice the level of fully methylated Cs than males. And female pups that received male hormones during the critical first few days of life had similar levels of methyltransferase activity and overall methylation as males. They also resembled male pups in the spine density of astrocytes in the preoptic area of the brain, that telltale sign of masculinization. To test whether DNA methyltransferase was responsible for the full masculinization of the brain, a group of Nugent's collaborators at Mount Sinai School of Medicine blocked the enzyme in female rat pups. Not only did the density in astrocyte spines in the preoptic area increase, but female rats also started performing male-like sexual behaviors, quote, thrusting at and mounting other animals, unquote. The major finding, in essence, means that the female brain isn't just a default state. It's a repressed version of the male brain. When that repression is lifted in the form of blocked methyltransferase and therefore less methylation, then the male brain develops. But Nugent wasn't done yet. Previous theories about the brain's masculinization assumed that once a brain was set as male or female, the programming wasn't reversible. But Nugent's group decided to question that belief as well. First, they exposed female pups that were 10 days old, well past the window when sexual differentiation is complete, to male hormones. The females were not affected since the time window for hormones to act on methyltransferase had presumably closed. But then, the researchers gave the female pups a drug that directly blocked the enzyme. The females' brains and behaviors started resembling males, evidence that the brain sexualization, while it normally only occurs in a brief window of time, isn't so set as stone as was once believed. Nugent concludes with, quote, sex and gender is really a continuum. There are shades of gray in there, unquote. She refuses to comment on how all this may work in human brain gender development and if methylation can be altered and changed in humans. Think about that and think about the, uh, the potential for what's being suggested here. I am not going to go there. I am not going to discuss it, again, for fear of all the emails that I may get. But think about it for just a moment. Next story, blood. Blood typing in low supplies of rare blood types may soon become a thing of the past. Everyone's blood can soon essentially make everyone a universal donor. Blood of an incompatible type, no matter how abundant, would not help you at all if you were transfused with it. You would suffer a severe, potentially fatal immune response. But what if blood of one type could be changed into blood of another type? 
Blood type is determined by the sugar antigens found on your particular blood cells. If you can strip off those sugar antigens from the blood cells, then anybody could use that blood, no matter what their blood type, because there would be no antigens, no chemicals to interact with the immune system. The possibility of stripping off those antigenic chemicals from red blood cells has intrigued scientists for a long time. And in recent years, they've even made some progress. They come up with an enzyme that snips off those sugars that sprout from the red blood cells. When the enzyme acts on red blood cells from type A and B blood, they become more like blood cells from type O. And type O is a universal donor. It does not cause an immune response when given to people with type A, B, or AB blood. Now, the problem to date with this method of stripping off sugars is that it is not very practical. It is both inefficient and uneconomical. However, this process may no longer be infeasible. Recent work by Dr. Steve Withers at the University of British Columbia was described back in April in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. To create a high-powered version of the antigen-stripping enzyme, Withers used a technology called directed evolution that involves inserting mutations into the gene that codes for the enzyme and then selecting mutants that are more effective at cutting the antigens. In just five generations of alterations, Wither was able to create a cutting enzyme that's 170 times more effective than the original. Withers wrote, quote, Enzymatic removal of the A or B antigens yields universal O-type blood, but is inefficient. Starting with a glycoside hydrolase from the bacteria Streptococcus pneumoniae, which cleaves the entire terminal trisaccharide antigenic determinants from some of the linkages on the red blood cell surface, we developed variants with vastly improved activity towards some of the linkages that are resistant to cleavage by the wild-type enzyme, unquote. With the new and improved enzyme, Withers and his group were able to remove most of the antigens in type A and B blood, which is very cool. However, before the blood could be used in a clinical setting in hospitals to create type-free blood, it would have to be capable of removing all the antigens. The immune system is highly sensitive to blood groups, and even small amounts of residual antigens could trigger an immune response. Problem. Withers, however, says that he is confident that, quote, we can take this a whole lot further and make the enzyme even more efficient, unquote. The last two stories of the night are kind of related to each other insofar as they are about identifying people using new genetic techniques. The first story actually dates back to November and was published in the journal Biotechniques, but it was when I read it last week that I knew I had to share it with you, even though it's a little on the older side. The title was, quote, DNA Profiles from Finger Marks, unquote. That's a very simple title, but it's actually quite interesting, quite amazing. Anyone who watches any CSI show knows that fingerprints are kind of old hat. Sure, fingerprints are employed in criminal investigations and in courts of law, but they are just not sexy anymore. In the last 30 years, a huge number of cold cases have been solved using DNA fingerprinting evidence where genetic markers particular to an individual were used to identify and convict criminal suspects. Since its first use as a forensic tool in the 1980s, 
DNA analysis has become the gold standard of evidence in criminal justice. Recent improvements in DNA purification and amplification techniques have made it much easier to obtain reliable DNA profiles from minimal sample material. The next generation of sequencing technologies are identifying new targets that will yield markers more specific for individual suspects, as well as allow the collection and sharing of these data through centralized databases. Given its simplicity, PCR is ideally suited for forensics, since it provides exquisite sensitivity of detection and enables a genotype to be generated very quickly. PCR is a method that enzymatically copies DNA in a matter of an hour or two. This process allows investigators to rule suspects in or out within the few hours it takes to perform and analyze the reaction. Well, at least that's how it works on CSI. My cop friends assure me that in practical terms, it may take weeks to get crime lab results, simply because labs are often swamped with a huge number of requests. At any rate, sample preparation protocols and contamination by others who may have handled the sample or were present at the crime scene can make it difficult to interpret results. The low amounts of DNA that investigators have to work with are also rather problematic. Doctors Jennifer Templeton and Adrian Lineacre at Flinders University in Adelaide, Australia, recently addressed these issues in the biotechnique paper that I mentioned earlier. In their study, they used PCR to profile DNA collected directly from swabs of fingerprints. Yes, they isolated and analyzed DNA short tandem repeats directly from fingerprints. They didn't need tissues, they didn't need hairs, they didn't need anything except for the fingerprint. This is a massive step forward in crime detection. Lineacre says, quote, There is latent DNA on things that you can't see, such as doorknobs, knife handles, etc. Currently, you need to do a DNA extraction where you lose up to 80% of the DNA, even with the best methods. So you end up with insufficient template to do anything. The only way to get it to work is if you boost the number of cycles, which a lot of labs don't like to do. Cycles refers to the number of cycles in PCR that are done. Others have been able to amplify fingerprint DNA using PCR with increased numbers of cycles for low copy number detection. But if you increase the number of cycles, that introduces errors that include misdetection of targets and overamplification of a target. Templeton and Lineacre decided to do direct PCR on DNA from swabs of fingerprints collected from all five fingers of 34 volunteers, and they were able to generate interpretable profiles for 71% of the 170 swabs using the Profiler Plus and NGM Select STR typing kits, which are very popular among the police. Lineacre came up with the idea to try direct PCR on swabs from earlier work where he and his colleagues generated DNA fingerprinting profiles from human hairs. He says, quote, if you take two millimeters of your hair from the proximal end, every hair will generate a full profile. This made me think that we could also get it from finger marks, unquote. Lineacre's group used a positively charged swab to collect negatively charged DNA. The approach was so effective that the researchers did not need to extract the DNA. They simply placed the fibers from the swab into a PCR tube and performed the recommended number of PCR cycles to generate the profiles. 
Lineacre concludes with, quote, We wanted to do it as forensic labs currently do with commercial kits so that it will be easy to implement. This also reduces the chances of swapping things up and greatly reduces cost. When we started a few years ago, I thought this was already done. I'm not going to take any great praise for this because it was patently obvious. Unquote. Not everything is patently obvious, but it's nice that he thinks it's patently obvious. Last story. All right, here's a fantasy. Bob and Fred are brothers, genetically identical twins who came from the same split ova, what we call monozygotic twins. Bob commits a heinous crime. Fred has no alibi, and his brother is a sociopath. Bob pays off some people to create an alibi. Additionally, Bob insists that Fred did it since genetic evidence was left at the crime scene to prove it was him. Is it possible to tell apart DNA from genetically identical individuals? Can we bring the evil Bob to justice? You think this is just a silly hypothetical. This could never happen. Well, think again. This conundrum isn't just my own inane dramatic device. In a rape case currently winding its way through the court systems of Boston, Massachusetts, an indictment only came after authorities spent over $100,000 to use a recently developed second-generation genome mapping technique to exclude the suspect's twin as a match. And this isn't the only instance where the inability to distinguish between twins has hindered law enforcement. DNA sequences of identical twins should, in theory, be identical, but DNA replication is not error-free, and other mutations can also arise during development. One simple but brute-force approach for differentiating between twins is to simply sequence the whole genome. I mean, there are minor base pair alterations even in monozygotic twins. You look at the whole genome, and you'll be able to see those. Um, If such a mutation is identified at a particular location in the twin, then that same particular mutation can be specifically searched for in the crime scene sample. However, this is very expensive and time-consuming and is unlikely to be paid for by cash-strapped police forces. How do you make this cheaper and easier for police departments to perform themselves? Dr. Graham Williams at the University of Huddersfield in the UK recently published a story in the journal Analytical Biochemistry that focuses not quite so much on twin DNA, but on epigenetic changes in the DNA. Yes, we are back to DNA methylation, our very first story of the evening. Williams and his colleagues have now developed a faster method for detecting DNA methylation differences which can be altered by environmental factors in pairs of identical twins. The new approach is called high-resolution melt curve analysis. Williams says, quote, What HRMA does is to subject the DNA to increasingly high temperatures until the hydrogen bonds holding the two strands of DNA together melt and break. This is known as the melting temperature. The more hydrogen bonds that are present in the DNA the higher the temperature required to melt them apart. Consequently, if one DNA sequence is more methylated than the other, 
then the melting temperature of the two samples will be different, a difference which can be measured and which will establish the difference between two identical twins. Unquote. To test the method, Williams isolated DNA from cheek swabs collected from five sets of identical twins. The researchers were able to distinguish between all five pairs of twins using melting curves from amplification products for the ALU-E2F3 locus. However, only four of the five sets of twins were able to be told apart by melting curves from another locus, the ALUSP locus. This indicates that genetic location selection might be critical for effective analysis. The largest difference in melting temperatures was seen for the oldest set of twins, though the data overall did not show a clear relationship between methylation differences and age. The authors acknowledged that environmental effects on DNA methylation over time, which is the basis of this test, could actually be a significant drawback. If, for example, samples collected years ago are tested against samples gathered in the present day, this limits the usefulness of the approach on cold cases. In addition, since DNA methylation patterns can also vary in different body fluids from the same individual, samples originating from one bodily fluid should be tested against DNA taken from the same bodily fluid. Despite these limitations, the HRMA method represents a significant milestone. Williams says, quote, We have demonstrated substantial progress toward a relatively cheap and quick test for differentiating between identical twins in forensic casework, unquote. Well, that's all for me for now. As always, take care. Be wary of evil twins. If you're an evildoer, leave lots of fingerprints. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim, what can I say? On the dot, always lovely. Thank you so much. Now, before we get into our main fiction, little heads up. Don't forget, YouTube there. I put up this week an, an Asimov Heinlein Smackdown. Yes, I read two books. I listened to one and I read one on my Kindle within the same week. And one was Caves of Steel Asimov and one was, or Heinlein's was, Double Star. And I've pitted them together, and one is a clear winner for me by a mile. So pop over to the kind of YouTube channel, subscribe. That would keep me very happy, and have a have a have a watch. I was going to have a listen, but have a watch. Yes. So, main fiction, and don't forget, stick around after the main fiction as well. I've got a big announcement. But main fiction is Persephone Descendant by Derek Kunskin. We've played one of Derek's stories before, just fantastic. This originally came out in Analog Magazine. For anyone who does not know about Derek, I will give you a little bio. Derek Kunskin is a writer of science fiction and fantasy living in Quebec. His fiction has appeared in Analog, Beneath the Skies, Black Gate, On Spec, and three Escape Artist podcasts, several anthologies, and multiple times in Asimov's. That there, you know what I mean? You kind of get better than that, man. Go on, Derek. Brilliant. In 2012, he was shortlisted for the Aurora Awards, and in 2013, his novelette, We of the Needle won the Asimov Award. He has a master's degree in microbiology and a bloodline that traces way back generations of Quebecians. Now, I don't know how you say it properly, Derek, but I'm saying Quebecians. 
This story is narrated by Mark Killerfool and Mark, man, he's just stepping up to the mark every time. Just fantastic. I've, Mark's got a huge bio there, so I'm not going to read it all, but just like I say, he's, I put his link on his website and everything. Just stunning. Mark, thank you so much for this. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Persephone Descending by Derek Kunskin. 68 kilometers above the surface, in the thin, yellowed haze of the photochemical zone of Venus's atmosphere, Marie-Claude emerged under the roof of the floating factory. Yellow-brown cloud curved away below her in all directions, while the stars poked through a sky widened by a big sun, inviting an artistic soul to make something of it. A dumb maintenance drone, one of many in the factory, floated by wiping the glass of the roof. Her suit battery status blinked from green to yellow. She jiggled the pack, yellow to green again. An environment laced with acid bred all sorts of shorts and power leaks. The colonist called all these irritating maintenance problems bibit after the little biting flies of Quebec's wilderness. She leaned on the wing of her plane, just for a quick break from the life of cramped factory to cramped habitat. The fast, empty wind caressing her suit was a doubtful thing, an experience at a remove, a ghostly touch that froze the bones. The colonist did not touch Venus. They experienced the idea of her through their suits. Venus wrapped herself in clouds deeper and heavier than an ocean. Marie-Claude could only stand on the shores they had built and watch Venus as she might watch a movie, something to be left behind when she returned to the floating habitats. Venus isolated them from everything except the violence with which she touched them, bathing them in hot, cancerous solar radiation, suffocating them with thin, anoxic air, reaching up for them with tongues of sulfuric acid, delighting in marking them with acid scars where she gnawed through environmental suits and protective films. Her battery toggled from green to yellow again. She whacked the bibit back to green. She opened her plane and climbed in. Renault, she radioed her supervisor. Marie Claude here. I'm taking off from Plant 6. Take off from a factory was a bit like the short and long seconds at the peak of a roller coaster. A ramp simply let off a lip and on to the yawning atmosphere. She started her engine, taxied to the top of the ramp, and rolled down, faster and faster. At the edge, a loud snap shook the plane, and a shrieking hole opened in the side. The plane spun. A glimpse of the factory spun by, showing, at the edge of the ramp, a cleaning drone, with a part of Mary Claude's wing in its grabbing claw. It shouldn't have been there. It shouldn't have grabbed at her plane. She spun away. Dashboard darkened. She plunged toward the yellow cloud deck. Marie-Claude's heart thumped too loudly. Thoughts loud, useless. Pilot training dragged her fingers to scrabble under her seat for the ejection switch. But the cockpit floor had bent, jamming itself against her seat. She couldn't reach it. Mad, 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 she whispered. Marie-Claude, what's going on? Renault's voice crackled in her helmet. 
You're losing altitude. No ejection seat. Busted plane. Flat spin. Sulfuric acid clouds. Callis, she swore. Marie-Claude, do you read me? Terror froze her lungs with cold fingers. Jerk harness free. Plane shuddering. Moved a gaping hole in the cockpit. Too loud. Fingers gripping seat. Jump. Thin air whipped. Clouds below. Racing up. Scream. Tumble away. Small parachute yanked lightly at her. Voice in her ears. Hands searching for parachute cords. Parachute above her. Parachute above her. Breathe. Breathe. Answer. Plane blown. I'm on my secondary chute. The small parachute barely slowed her. Only a fraction of an atmosphere resisted her descent. The air would not thicken to a full atmosphere for about ten kilometers. By then, it might be too late for rescue. I'm coming your way, Renault said. He radioed orders to the rest of the team, to the habitat platform five kilometers higher. Marie-Claude tasted black on her tongue. She gritted her teeth, willing herself not to puke in her helmet. Shock. Probably shock. Her stomach churned harder. Do something. She patted her suit. Adrenaline might mask leaks or injuries. Seals and fabric and coatings. Okay. Heater and heat exchanger running. Oxygen pressure a bit low, but green. Main battery still green. Sealed pockets on the arms and legs of her suit contained bits of her toolkit. Breathe. Renault was on his way. Be calm. The plane dragged a trail of smoke through the haze. About five kilometers below, the smoke column bent sharply. At that moment, in the vast clouds, relative movement was born. She and the habitats and factories lived in the super-rotating layer of the upper atmosphere, in wind that circled Venus every four days. Her plane had dropped into the slower-moving cloud deck beneath and was slowly falling behind her. Merde! We know the transition layer is higher today. I'm going to fall out of the super-rotating winds. She did not add, and out of your reach, until you've circled the planet. How soon? A few minutes. Where the bottom of the super-rotating winds touched the top of the lower clouds, the smoke column had been torn into a string of eddies, dark berries in the stretched lines of yellow clouds beneath. She rode nothing more than a bit of resined fabric on thin carbon cables. The turbulence will shred my chute. I'm on full throttle, Mary-Claude. We'll get there. She looked up into the yellow-white sky. She couldn't see any planes. Sixty-one kilometers separated her from the surface of Venus. She had a few minutes before it would become very dangerous for Renault or any of the other crews to rescue her. The factory shrank to a toy-like gray stub far above her. But another shape was growing, resolving into a repair drone, descending on two propellers whirring behind it, coming toward her. It wasn't programmed to do that. It was not programmed to do anything but clean and fix simple leaks, unless engineers gave it more specific repair tasks. Renault, did you program one of the repair drones to come get me? The radio crackled, echoing lightning from the deep deck of the lower clouds. No, I didn't think we'd have time enough to do that. I'll see if I can have someone on it. That's not why I'm asking. On takeoff, I collided with a repair drone. It shouldn't have been anywhere near the launch ramp. I think it grabbed part of my wing. Are you sure? 
she hesitated to tell him of the radio. Drones wouldn't grab her plane unless they were programmed to. Sabotage. Whoever had done this would be as likely to hear. I think someone tried to kill me, Renault. I think they reprogrammed the drone. Plan 6 was added to the inspection route late, and my name was put on it. And now this drone is following me down. What? Hang on. I'll access it from here. Marie-Claude waited, time ticking below her as the smog thickened and the drone approached. I can't get in. Its antenna is offline. I can't get away, Marie-Claude said. I'm almost there. The drone neared, only three hundred meters from her. Its grasping claws were open, capable of tearing her parachute. Only a half kilometer below her, the smoke of her plane was a thinning gray streak. She took a deep breath. It's not going to happen, Renault. The suit can keep me alive in the upper cloud deck, but without a chute, I'm just going to drop until I cook. I've got to save the chute. Marie-Claude, what are you doing? Instead of pulling on the brake loops of her parachute, she pulled all the suspension wires on one side until the canopy spilled. She fell. Her stomach leapt. Arm over arm, she pulled her parachute close until she hugged it, and only its edges slapped frantically at her arms in the wind. She tucked her legs and tumbled. Thinly glowing clouds above, darkness below, spinning, two sides. Maddie Claude! Renault yelled. Turbulence hit like a fist. She was spinning dust. If she blacked out, she was dead, yelling in her radio, droplets of sulfuric acid rain streaking the glass of her helmet. The world darkened. The buffeting and spinning wanted to tear her apart, but finally the bumping stopped, and she fell again. She let her shoot go. The canopy flipped and bloomed and yanked her upright. A voice spoke in her radio, nearly overwhelmed by static. "'I'm through the transition,' she said. My parachute is okay. The pressure is a tenth of an atmosphere. Temperature is about minus twenty Celsius. I'm not dead. Yet. The planes now had a relative wind speed difference to her of about 150 kilometers per hour. And the planes were only rated for up to two atmospheres of pressure at about 80 degrees. After that, the sulfuric acid chemistry became too hostile. The Laurentides the main habitat, and a few probes to study the deep atmosphere and its life forms, but none of them would be nearby. They could probably refit something with which to rescue her in a day or two, but by the time the Laurentide was back overhead, she would have descended well past finding. De Vieux-Saint Inquiry Transcript, page 772, 3.30 p.m., Chloe Reverin, Chair. We now have Monsieur Renaud Lenoir, who leads the Nouvelle Voix party, but who is also the engineering foreman on April the 6th. Can you describe for the inquiry uh, your view of the events of April the 6th? 3.30. Renaud Lenoir, engineering supervisor. Thank you, Madame Chairman. At approximately 2 p.m., Mademoiselle de Voisard radioed as per procedure that she had arrived at Plant 6, and started her normal inspections and work planning for later technical crews. 3.30. Sandrine Grugohe, 
inquiry member. A question, Madame Chair. 3.30, Chloe Reverend, Chair. Go ahead. 3.30, Sandrine Gregohe, inquiry member. Monsieur Lanois, in a number of reports, the press contends that Mademoiselle de Voissart was not even supposed to be at Plan 6 that day, and that the shifts were changed to draw her there. 3.35, Renaud Lanois, engineering supervisor. The schedule had been changed a few days earlier. Mademoiselle de Voissart was put on Plant 6 for April 6th. 3.35, Sandrine Grugahe, inquiry member. Who had access to the schedule? To change it, that is. 3.35, Renaud Lenoir, engineering supervisor. A number of people have access to the schedule. Changing it is a normal part of any week's work, Madame Grugahe. I have access, as do most of the engineers, including Mademoiselle de Vossard. 3.35, Sandrine Grégoré, inquiry member. You don't have... 3.35, François Beaulieu, inquiry member. Madame Chair, Monsieur Lanois is not able to tell his story. 3.35, Sandrine Grégoré, inquiry member. Monsieur Lanois has neglected to bring up important details... 3.35, Chloe Revrain, Chair. Go ahead, Madame Grugogohe, but please be brief. 3.35, Sandrine Grugogohe, Inquiry Member. Monsieur Lanois, fine. Uh, many people have access to the schedules, but through accounts that identify those making the changes. Who made the changes to the schedule to set up Mademoiselle de Vassard for the sabotage of her plane? 3.35, Renaud Lanois, Engineering Supervisor. We know who accessed the schedule, Madame Grogohe. My lawyers have suggested that I should not reveal what I know here, so as not to interfere with criminal investigations. 340, Claude Evrin, Chair. This inquiry has the authority to compel witnesses, monsieur, and our legal counsel suggests that the danger to criminal procedures is minimal, as the cat is already out of the bag and on the top of blog feeds over most of the solar system. Reporter's Note In-camera consultation between Inquiry Council and Witness Council 345 Renaud Lenoir, Engineering Supervisor The schedule is changed by an override code from the Bureau de Gouverneur, masked behind a dummy admin account. 345 Chloe Levrin, Chair The Press Especially the nationalist press has made much of this being a separatist plot to frame the nationalist cause. What are your thoughts on that? 345, Renaud Lenoir, Engineering Supervisor. I don't think that theory holds water. The sabotage was amateurish, that is certain. But Mademoiselle de Voissart was not supposed to have survived those first few instants to tell us that the repair drone was acting strangely which allowed us to pull the curtain back on the plot. Marie-Claude wiped the drizzle of acid from her faceplate. Her oxygen display had yellowed. Only a few hours of oxygen left, and she continued descending. She hung in a rain of sulfuric acid, 58 kilometers above the surface of Venus. Nowhere to refuel, or recharge, or repair, or even stop. In the distance below, a flock of spherical, gas-filled photosynthesizers blew with the wind 
like pollen. Blastulae. Sometimes storms brought them as high as the photochemical zone, where they quickly died from the changes in pressure. They were small and neutrally buoyant at this altitude. They were not buoyant enough to stop her descent. Maybe if she put enough of them together? Perhaps a kilometer below, in the brown-yellow gloom, a cluster of dark spots moved, backward relative to the wind that carried her. They were much bigger than the blastulae. She tugged at her control lines, turning to get a better view, and hard enough to spill some of the air from her parachute. Her horizontal speed picked up, and she dropped faster. And only because she had turned did she see that the repair drone had followed her. Repair drones had not been designed specifically to survive in the cloud deck, but they were hardy. In the photochemical zone, it might have run forever on solar power, but it also cracked sulfuric acid into hydrogen and solid sulfur, which could be recombined later to work in shadow. It could follow her a long time, if it could take on enough ballast to sink as fast as she, and if it could survive the heat and acid. Marie-Claude gritted her teeth and spilled her parachute. She plummeted. Two hundred meters. Four hundred. Six hundred. She finally let the wires go and the parachute unfurled. The murk of the burnt yellow clouds hid her from the repair drone. And two hundred meters below floated a pod of thirty rosettes. Large Venusian plants. Their bulbous ochre heads were composed of six radially symmetric gas-filled chambers each one a meter across. Sulfuric acid and organic materials collected in the cup formed by the tops of the six chambers. From the center of this cup grew a large triangular frond, a fine black net with which to filter the photosynthesizing microbes from the atmosphere. Beneath the six chambers hung short, heavy trunks which stored nutrients and provided ballast. They hung like weird, rootless trees, orphaned in the vastness of an ocean of cloud. Carefully, Mary Cloud matched her horizontal speed and descended, until with uncertain hands and unsteady feet, she landed on one of the rosettes, scrambling to grab its frond before she slipped. The round, woody platform was slimy with decomposing microbes, slowly being absorbed by the skin of the rosette. The rosette began to sink under her weight. Although slower than she'd been descending in her parachute, but as the pressure increased, so would the buoyancy of the rosette, until she finally stopped descending. And in the meantime, she could hide here from the repair drone. She shook acid rain from her parachute, and laid it over herself like a tarp against the drizzling acid. She sank into the somber clouds for a long time, and the rain stopped. In the, re- in the enforced quiet, her arms tingled as if she wanted to hit something, for a long time. She was going to die. She was sinking in the toxic atmosphere of Venus because someone had decided to kill her. Nervous, angry, baffled tears tickled hot lines into her cheeks. She cursed the acid. She cursed the world and politics, and she cursed herself for coming to Venus. The Americans, Australians, and British still raced against the Chinese for the industrial and economic dominance of Mars. Egypt and Saudi Arabia had taken Vesta and Ceres and had staked claims on dozens of other asteroids with robotic prospectors. 
The Russians, perhaps for having lost the moon to the Americans a century earlier, took it for their inheritance. The first wave of solar system colonization was complete by the time Quebec separated from Canada. L'Assemblée Nationale decided to make their mark as an advanced nation by colonizing Venus. There was no money to be made on Venus, no resource it could provide to Earth or the rest of the solar system that could not be gotten for cheaper from the Egyptians or the Saudis, but her clouds are of scientific value. Strange microbial extremophiles had been found, feeding a deep, inaccessible ecology. Basic scientific research would not finance the effort, and colonization was not cheap, but the president had wanted un grand geste, a starward look for her new nation. And it was a grand geste, approached with an earnest, prideful, counterproductive fervor. Little matter that the new republic had to launch Anglo hardware on Egyptian rockets, and that it trained its engineers in Houston. La République de Québec was colonizing Venus. They ought to have started with robotic stations in the atmosphere to prepare the way for astronauts. But La République had the romantic eagerness of a teenager, throwing waves of engineers, chemists, meteorologists, and doctors into space with cramped habitats, optimistic assumptions, and fickle support. They were part of Le Grand Histoire, and dreams thrive in fields of willful blindness. From Commentaries on the Foundation of the Venusian State The clouds thinned and broke beneath her, and a frisson of awe was born in Marie-Claude. She rode the rosette near the top of a kilometer of clear air, between the yellow-brown upper cloud deck and the angry dark clouds of the middle deck. The cavernous space was empty, carved into all the stored acid and spite in the solar system. She was tiny, a mite riding a bit of dander in a stadium. The vertigo that had trailed her all this time suddenly pounced, and she snaked her arms around the frond as if she stood on a cliff. The rosette sank through the great cave in the clouds, and the puffy floor of the middle deck approached with the gentleness of a summer balloon ride. She was going to die. Venus would kill her, but had given her one last vision of wonder. Marie-Claude rode her magic carpet to the bottom of the clear air and sank into the thick cloud of the middle deck. Like a drowning swimmer, Marie-Claude looked upward as the darkness swallowed. The repair drone broke out of the umber clouds a kilometer above, and then everything was out of sight. A new rain of sulfuric acid fell as her oxygen display began winking yellow. There was no oxygen recharging station around, and perhaps she would never see one again. She had to take what she needed. She was an engineer, but like everyone, she'd read the ecological papers produced by the colony's part-time researchers. The clouds, filled with dust, were a perfect crucible for Venusian life, cycling between low pressure and high, sunlit and dark, concentrated and dilute acidity, evaporation and condensation. Whole classes of acidophiles, psychrophiles and thermophiles had life cycles the, the colonists hadn't had time to study. 
The microbes captured the wavelengths of light penetrating the middle and upper cloud decks within cell walls hardened to maintain buoyant gas pressures. Presumably, some of these autotrophs had evolved into floating mats that inflated and de- Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Deflated as needed. And then, over millions of years, into hardened wooden balls. And finally... In an accident of tissue innovation rivaled by the Cambrian explosion on Earth, the balls had clustered into rosettes and the cloud trawlers that lived in the deep atmosphere. The six chambers of the rosette beneath their feet were filled with oxygen, a byproduct of photosynthesis. Oxygen was buoyant in Venus's carbon dioxide atmosphere, but Marie-Claude couldn't take any of it without jeopardizing her foothold. She needed some of the spherical plants, or blastulae, that she'd seen. She looked for a long time before she spotted a cluster floating perhaps a kilometer below, moving almost in parallel to the rosette she rode as she sank. Rosettes drifted with the wind, partly driven by their high fronds. Marie-Claude set her feet into the sludge at the base of the frond and tugged and pulled and leaned into the frond, until the frond, like a small sail, angled to the wind so that slowly her rosette began drifting leftward. The rosettes were not easy to steer, but slowly, over some thirty minutes, she managed it across the wind, approaching the cluster of blastulae that contained an adult form, several buds and a pair of adults still connected by sticky ooze. Marie-Claude threw her parachute over the cluster and hauled it in. The blastulae had nothing to do with embryos, but reminded many of the hollow ball of cells phase of embryonic development, and no one had time to find a better name. They were hollow, woody balls that reproduced by budding. Adult blastulae floated with crowns of smaller buds, which grew to adult size and then detached when the differences in buoyancy between parent and offspring overcame the stickiness of the mucus gluing them together. Her oxygen tanks had emergency hand pumps, that could be fitted to the hoses in case the power failed in the habitats. The hoses contained anhydrous crystalline filters to neutralize sulfuric acid. She set up her pump and pulled one of the blastulae from the parachute. Her helmet light revealed a brown skin pigmented to absorb the yellowing light reaching these depths. 
transparent mucus slicked the blastulae, beating off the raining acid. Suddenly, the blastula hissed around six stomata. The carbon dioxide of the Venusian atmosphere flowed inward, and the blastula lost its buoyancy. Marie Claude turned it over, and it hissed again, letting in more carbon dioxide. Photoreactivity. Why? If an updraft carried a blastula into the upper atmosphere, sunlight would burn it. Its stomata must have dilated to allow heavy carbon dioxide in to lower its buoyancy. Her lamp had tricked the stomata. She let the blastula go. It tumbled slowly over the edge of the rosette. At some point, it would reach a depth where it would float. Then further photosynthesis would create oxygen, which would buoy it more. In extremis, blastulae had been observed to pump out some air from their cavities to correct their buoyancy more abruptly. Marie-Claude switched off her helmet light and let her eyes adjust to the gloom of the rainy sundown. Then she pulled out one of the immature blastulae. She traced it with her gloved fingertips until she found the stomata, tiny closed mouths, six of them ringing the underside. She cleared away the mucus and placed the hose against a stoma. With the other hand, she took out a small hand light and lit just that part of the blastula. The stoma relaxed, and Marie-Claude inserted the hose into the plant before too much carbon dioxide could rush in. She pumped the oxygen from the blastula into her tank. When she finally pulled free the hose and released it, it bobbed up and away, carried up like a cork in water. She repeated her vampiric feast on all the blastulae in her parachute, watching each one shudder up into the clouds upon release, like bubbles rising in deep water. Seven of the woody balloons disappeared into the sky before her oxygen display edged into yellow-green. She had some oxygen, but she needed more. But as she stowed her equipment, she realized that acid had rasped the fabric of her parachute raw. Les colonists did not design their equipment to operate in the heavily acidic atmosphere below the super-rotating winds, but something could be refitted in that time. The food paste in her suit had the calories, and the water recycler might keep her hydrated. Sweat dripped in her eyes. The temperature had dropped 50 degrees and now hugged her with a full atmosphere of pressure. A light shone in the distance above her. A machine whined. The drone was not designed to operate so deep. The steels used to build drones were more vulnerable to hot acids than her suit of fiber-reinforced plastics. If she could survive four days, they might be able to rescue her. Marie-Claude's mother had also come to a new world, in one of the waves of Haitian refugees to Quebec. Her mother had married a Québécois pure laine, pure wool, a man whose family counted French, or at least European blood, for generations. Her parents bequeathed to her two identities— one of belonging by blood, another of alienness by color of skin. So, from birth, her country was both hers and not hers. The new nation of Quebec consumed its children with politics of identity and place, self-referential and password-looking. Quebec offered no place free of the acidity of the cultural insecurity. So Mary Claude had come to Venus for the freedom and even-handedness of ground without footprints. 
she might have immigrated to Mars or the asteroids for frontier life. But as much as the Quebecois infuriated her, she was Quebecois herself, by blood and language. The Grand Geste seemed perfect for a time, but it turned out not to have been the frontier. Les colonistes had carried with them the panels and studies, the committees and language laws. Instead of thinking new thoughts, they argued over resource budgets, work schedules, and culture by proposing motions and agendas in committees. Marie-Claude liked engineering problems. Calculations of force and pressure and resistance and pH were simple things, an escape from politics that seemed to materialize whenever two people met. Marie-Claude's competent, forceful, plain speak led inevitably to her election as the chair of the engineering union. Marie-Claude was not the only one restless for something they could not articulate. No one knew yet where they were going, but never a people to stop at one poorly conceived grand geste. Les colonistes surviving in the clouds of Venus quickly began to speak of their own state, a country of our own, un pays pour nous. And so, les separatistes were born, even though les colonistes needed Quebec to foot the bills for metals and volatiles. A greater gift could not have been offered to the new nation of Quebec. Quebec did not have the budget to sustain the colony. They derived no benefit from it, not even respect. One might admire Quixote, but one did not respect him. Despite being faced with so convenient an escape from its responsibilities as the mother country, it surprised no one that l'Assemblée denounced any talk of secession. And so were born... Les nationalistes. The factions of the habitat spun webs of arguments for un Venus indépendante or un Venus coloniale. Marie-Claude considered both ideas criminally impractical. Whether the colony declared its independence from Quebec or not, Venus intended to kill them. Tempers burned, sometimes into open violence. Renaud Lenoir, the separatist leader, dreamed of a new nation, and saw Mary Claude, chair of the powerful engineering union, as the key to unlocking it. He'd been waiting for her to choose her side. Someone else had not. From Persephone's Descent, the biography of Marie-Claude de Vieussard. Marie-Claude sailed her rosette with the wind, slowly sinking. The atmosphere thickened, but the rosette was still not able to support her weight. After several hours, the Stygian clouds broke again into the kilometer of clear air beneath the middle cloud deck. This great cavern in the clouds was somber. Other rosettes floated in the distance like dark specks, failing to give perspective to the vastness and too far away to help her with buoyancy or oxygen. She must be only fifty kilometers above the surface now, almost twenty kilometers below the Laurentides and the other habitats. No one would be able to come this far down to rescue her. Marie-Claude sank through the hot air and into the lower clouds of Venus, a thick yellow haze of sulfuric acid, veined with lines of brown and green mineral dust and chlorine. Few photosynthesizers would survive at these depths, leaving the clouds open to webs of chemotrophs, living off what volcanoes 
and storms churned upward. A rain of hot acid fell, until through the cloud she spotted a cluster of blastulae beneath her, directly in her downward path. But her two-edged luck persisted. The blastulae were full of oxygen, but they were gummed to the side of a trawler. Trawlers were shaped like rosettes, darker in color, radially symmetric, with six buoyancy chambers, but were much larger, serving as the platform for many kinds of life. Blastulae sometimes stuck parasitically to the great trawlers, absorbing nutrients from the rain they were not large enough to collect on their own. Trawlers were not photosynthesizers. They occupied a more dramatic ecological niche. A conducting carbon filament hundreds of meters long hung below the trawler, ending in a bob. As the trawler drifted with the wind, the conductor joined clouds of different static charges and altitudes, drawing an electric current along its length. More dangerously, trawlers were lightning rods to the storms of the middle and lower cloud decks. It was not healthy to be near a trawler. But she needed the oxygen. The trawler and its crown of blastulae floated half a kilometer beneath her. Marie-Claude's battery display suddenly flashed, edging from yellow to orange. The suit's heat exchanger shifted to a power saver setting, and the suit's radio antenna turned off. Mailed. She slipped her battery out of its pack behind her. The hand light trembled. Mailed, mailed, mailed. Grainy acid leaked out from the fiber-reinforced plastic on one side of the battery. Its lifetime was measured in minutes. Hours, if she was lucky. This shouldn't have happened. These plastics were hardened to survive in the Venusian atmosphere. Not exactly true. The fiber-reinforced plastics were resistant to the low concentrations of sulfuric acid at the cooler temperatures, 60 and 70 kilometers above the surface. They reacted very differently to higher concentrations of sulfuric acid. Over the beating rain, a regular machine sound thrummed. With the increasing pressure, sound warbled and direction deceived. She spun. The drone closed from only a few hundred meters away, scarred by patches of acid corrosion. Marie-Claude had nothing with which to damage it. And now she would cook far sooner than the drone would dissolve. It neared. She was trapped. She couldn't see more than a few hundred meters through the rain. No sign of a storm. No thunder. The drone was fifty meters away now. She slipped the battery back into its pocket, switched her helmet light to its brightest, and shone it on the rosette, along with both hand lamps. The rosette opened all six of its stomata, flooding its buoyancy chambers with heavy carbon dioxide. Marie-Claude's footing shuddered as the rosette tipped and sank. She held the frond tightly as the sludge on the rosette poured into clouds. Marie-Claude's feet slipped off, and then there was nothing beneath them. One of her flashlights spun into the gloom below. She and the rosette fell sideways toward the trawler. When the top of the trawler was fifteen meters below her, the rosette began drifting with the wind. She was going to miss her landing. And after the trawler, nothing separated her from the surface of Venus except forty-eight kilometers of crushing, hyperacidic, broiling atmosphere. She let go of the frond. She spread her arms and legs. 
She hit the top of the trawler hard, the blow accompanied by a powerful, static shock. She splashed in the pooled acid and organics and bounced nearly to the edge. Venusian epiphytes had colonized the trawler thickly, clinging with stringy roots or sticky mucus. They slowed her slide. She let her flashlight and parachute go and pulled free a pair of screwdrivers. She scraped the points along the top of the trawler until she stopped. Slowly, she pulled herself away from the edge. She ached all over. The rosette she had ridden all the way down to the lower clouds ascended lazily past the circling drone. The gloom pressed in. Even though it had been a further half-kilometer down, she could have sworn that the temperature had risen and that the atmosphere pressed tighter against her suit. The trawler was not evolved to carry an extra 90 kilos of rider and survival gear. It began sinking, but more slowly than the rosette had. The lower cloud deck thinned around her, and she descended into a dark, yellow haze. The temperature outside her suit had risen almost to the boiling point of water. She was now beneath the upper, middle, and lower cloud decks. The browned, cooked bellies of the lowest clouds of Venus lay above her head. This subcloud haze was a zone of thermal dissociation. She took the blastulae stuck to the trawler one by one and pumped the oxygen into her tank until it was fully in the green. Her battery icon still blinked orange-red. Something stung her leg like a wasp sting. She jerked and patted at her leg. The sulfuric acid at this heat and pressure had bored a hole through the fiber-reinforced plastic of her suit, the spite of Venus. She huddled under the remains of her parachute and pulled the suit repair kit out of a pocket. She neutralized the acid, cleaned the hole, applied the adhesive, and slapped the patch on. It was a drilled movement, automatic, thoughtless. It was now natural. What had her stupid plan been? Would she have one day taught children how to thwart the lashing of a chemically predatory planet? That was no birthright. The separatist and the nationalist could have the whole damned place. The last part of the drill was to get to shelter and replace the suit. Leaks bloomed in clusters, just like blastulae. She inspected the parts of her suit she could see. Patches of discoloration showed that her suit would not last even one more day in the hot rain. The acid delighted in dissolving all the cleverness of people. It might not matter. The heat would kill her soon if she didn't fix her battery. The Hadean rain poured again as she sank. It jumped and spattered the surface of the pool in the depression in the center of the trawler's platform and overflowed the depression, running over the edge and out of sight to fall until it evaporated, long before it ever came close to the surface of Venus. She ran a finger through the slime on the surface of the trawler. Murky organic strands shot through its translucence. It repelled water and probably contained bases to neutralize any acid that penetrated it. That was how an engineer would have designed a plant on Venus. Marie-Claude scooped a handful of the slime and rubbed it on her suit and the parachute. If she guessed wrong, and it was just a viscous acid, it would be a terrible way to die. It didn't seem to be hurting her suit, so she applied more, and soon she looked like she'd been dipped in egg white, but the rain no longer touched her suit. 
the battery reading flashed red. She needed to run the heat exchanger on full refrigeration. She had to do something. She pulled a pair of needle-nosed pliers from her tool pouch and cut her parachute cables, tying them together to make a cable about 40 meters long. With nothing to act as a python, she rammed the pliers into the woody shell of the trawler and hammered them deep into the thick wood near the trawler's axis with her boot. She tied the cable around it, tested her weight, and then slipped over the edge. The surface of Venus baked 43 kilometers below her boots, but it would never get a chance to kill her. Too much of the rest of the planet wanted to try first, as did the repair drone. A light shone into the rain high above, and the sounds of a propeller working carried. The drone relentlessly descended, as if it were necessary for it to finish the job. The long cable, grown of carbon and wood and slime, hung below the bulk of the trawler like a plumb line. Thick as her whole body, it flexed, resonating with the constant wind, to form standing waves that hummed in her bones. Other winds would find different resonances, and many others would find only discordance. She imagined ageless flocks of trawlers moving through the lower cloud deck, playing eerie subsonic hymns to Venus as she bathed them in poison. She lowered herself and swung, trying to reach the lower side of one of the buoyancy chambers. She didn't know how long her pliers would survive as a makeshift python. She found one of the trawler's six stomata on the lower curve of the buoyancy chamber. It was larger than the stomata on the rosette. She shone her helmet light on full. Its faltering light ought to have opened the stoma, but the vegetable lip remained shut. On the rosette, her helmet lamp had been enough to open a single stoma, but the trawler was bigger and far more complex. It probably opened all its stoma in unison, triggered by photoreceptors. She couldn't trigger them all from here. Acid rained over her, she dangled. The stock of the cable was still wide at this level, and slippery, but on the end of a swing, she wrapped her legs around it. She produced a screwdriver from its pocket sheath and pushed it into the stoma. The stoma opened slightly, and inflowing gas hissed. She wiggled the screwdriver back and forth, loudening the hiss. She had a small pry, useful for corroded axis hatches, on the habitats. One end was flat, the other tapered to a blunt point. She jammed the blunt end into the stoma, beside the screwdriver. Air whooshed in, until the pressure inside equilibrated. She strained the lip wider. The first inch resisted, but then she must have reached some point that triggered the rest of the opening cycle. The stoma dilated about 50 centimeters. Marie-Claude tossed her tools in and wedged her elbows and head through. She got a better grip and pulled herself awkwardly in. The stoma slowly contracted behind her. She collapsed against the curving walls. The chamber was round and nearly tall enough to stand in. She struggled to catch her breath in the heat when her parachute cord suddenly slacked and then tugged lightly at her waist. She reeled it in. Only a corroded fragment of the plier still dangled from the end. If she'd been a few seconds later, she would be plummeting through the brown haze right now. The stoma shut completely, and the drumming rain sounded hollow on the top of the trawler. Her faltering headlamp showed small sacks in the sides of the chamber, beginning to inflate and deflate. She crawled closer. They were fleshy, 
transparently thin, their muscular flexing slowly pumping air out of the chamber, regaining buoyancy. Remarkable. She shot off her helmet lamp to save the last of her power for her suit's cooling system and switched on her last flashlight, a small one for looking at the guts of machinery. A woody frame webbed the chamber, covered with a tough skin. Her light fell on dark patches above her that contracted in apparent response, simultaneous with a slight irising of the stoma, letting in more of the Venusian atmosphere, reducing the chamber's buoyancy further. She turned her light away from the patch. Unlike the rosette, the trawler had ribs and webs of vasculature. Marie-Claude followed them. Most cells in a rosette were photosynthetic, and each made their own food, like a cooperative. That was not true in a trawler, so it needed a complex vasculature to separate its functions. The cable moving through the atmosphere generated electricity, and something must carry either chemical or electrical energy to the rest of the body. Her flashlight showed dark lines within the skin of the chamber, all leading down to the axis of the trawler to the cable. Other thick lines led from the axis to long cylindrical nodules beneath the floor of the chambers. That was what she was looking for. There must be times when the trawler had no chance to collect electricity. The trawler must store food somewhere for those times. Those nodules might be it. Her red battery display flashed faster. She slipped her leaking battery from its pocket. She sawed through the tough vegetable flesh of the buoyancy chamber with a flattened end of the pry. She peeled back rubbery flaps, exposing a red, woody cylinder, like a stack of discs. The living carbon wiring of the trawler led into and out of the cylinder. She pulled a small voltmeter from the sealed pocket and pressed the needles against one of the wires leading into the cylinder. The voltmeter shot up and wobbled. She checked other wires. They were all live, with large variations in potential. The cylindrical stack showed a large, steady potential across its ends, like a capacitor, or the electroplaque of an eel. Something for times of famine. She hesitated. The electricity was dirty, changing potential rapidly, even past the capacitor. But the alternative to recharging her battery was seeing how she liked 110 degrees at three atmospheres of pressure. She had continued dropping, and might be as low as 39 or 38 kilometers above the surface. She looked for the best place to attach alligator clip wires to the capacitor, and finally chose a spot. The battery display in her visor of her helmet did not change. It blinked red, as if mocking her. If this were a world that did not want to kill her... She would have lightly touched the battery to see how much the charging had heated it, or to swat the bibits. But the deep dark of hell had her. Her voltmeter showed a variable current for long, changeless minutes. Still no new charge. She examined the battery more closely with a flashlight. The walls of the battery bowed like a melting toy. The acid exposed by the hole in the battery bubbled like magma. Merde! She yanked the wires, but the walls of the battery liquefied and its sludge poured in the floor of the woody chamber. No more main battery. Her backup battery was nearly used up. The hot suit against her skin was beginning to sting. She was going to pass out from heat exhaustion soon. Maddie Claude pulled the wires that had connected her suit to the battery and hesitated over the capacitor 
and its dirty electricity. Then she hooked her suit directly to the trawler, downstream of the electroblack. The displays in her helmet lit. The electrical icons expanded brightly, showing graphs of incoming voltage and current, their frequent searches. Little alarm symbols and different suit systems flashed yellow and red as fuses clicked, blowing and resetting every few seconds. Her backup battery was recharging. The suit's heat exchanger whirred, circulating hot fluid through tubes in her suit. She wondered how much it would refrigerate at this depth. She wilted, but imagined that it was becoming cooler. She felt as frayed as her suit, as melted as the battery. The clock display showed that 26 hours had passed since her plane had been attacked. In that time, she descended almost 30 kilometers, from the cold, thin photochemical zone past the three cloud decks and into the haze beneath. Venus had not succeeded in killing her yet. Venus was cunning, but Marie Claude was learning her tricks. She watched the displays for a long time, making sure that the trawler didn't blow the suit's electrical system. And then finally, too tired to manage any more, Marie-Claude lay as flat as she could and slept. Venus hated them, with blinding sulfuric acid, biting cold, ferocious winds, and if they were foolish, with crushing pressure and melting heat. Venus killed them with the slowness of a lion, picking off gazelles one by one. The slow, the unlucky, those who made small, human errors. These were bits of heroic news in La Presse or Le Devoir in Montreal and Quebec, testaments to the bravery of Quebecois astronauts. La République had heroes until the sinking of Le Matabidia. The upper atmosphere had corroded one of the buoyancy tanks of the floating habitat. As Le Matapédia sunk into the killing depths, kilometer by kilometer, many of the inhabitants had been rescued, but the public mood back home changed. The Québécois were proud, and they could stomach the sacrifice of the unlucky and the slow, but Venus had tried to execute a whole herd. Governments changed, throwing new equipment and fresh colonists into the clouds. Venus did not care. She could not be outnumbered and she did not relent. From Commentaries on the Foundation of the Venusian State Marie-Claude dreamed of heat and suffocation. A terrible dry thirst and a bath of sweat choked her, and she could neither wipe her face nor drink. Someone called her incessantly, penetrating the thickness of dream without breaking her free. Against an oppressive exhaustion, she opened her eyes. Marie-Claude, Marie-Claude, can you hear me? Renault, she said. She couldn't place where she was. Static swamped his voice. The lights on her suit were uneven, but, for the most part, in the yellows. Marie-Claude, you are alive. Where are you? She checked her readings. Two atmospheres. Had the trawler climbed as she slept? She had been at three atmospheres, but the temperature had risen to 120 degrees. I'm not sure. Have you got a fix on my signal? Faint one. It looks like you're at 33 kilometers. She retracted her barometer, then shone her flashlight on the little pumping sacks on the wall of her chamber. They had dropped the pressure in the chamber, increasing its buoyancy, but the trawler still could not hold her up. 
33 kilometers. She traveled halfway to the surface. She explained where she was. Inside the trawler? Renault crackled. That's incredibly dangerous. Marie-Claude checked the time. She had slept almost 24 hours. It had been 50 hours since the sabotage. How long have I been down here? Four days haven't passed. No. We got back to Laurentide and refitted the planes to fly ahead. I'm almost all fuel. There are eight of us up here looking for you. The habitats will be over tomorrow, but I'll be arriving on your position in about four hours. No plane can reach this depth, Marie-Claude said. A special plane will be dropping a deep probe tomorrow. Can you survive 24 hours? She looked at her makeshift wiring, the only thing keeping her alive. Her backup battery gave her a reserve of perhaps an hour. I don't know. Renault's silence dragged so long that she thought maybe they'd lost contact. What do you think would happen to a trawler if it goes into a storm? He finally asked. What? Where is there a storm? Venus had big polar storms, as stable as the ones on Saturn or Uranus, perhaps even as long-lived as the Great Red Spot. But below the super-rotating winds, the equatorial air frequently tore itself into short-lived storms of lightning and ripping winds. About an hour from you. How big? It's a storm. She understood. Researchers had dropped probes into the equatorial storms. None had survived the violent shifts of pressure, temperature, and acidity. This might be the way out, he said. You might catch an updraft. Renault, I've been standing on the edge for two days. I don't want to talk about luck. I'm sorry. I'm just glad you're alive. Everyone is going to be happy you're alive. The habitats are in turmoil. All the talk is about change. The constabulary has made arrests in the attempt on your life. The tracks led back to the office of the Parti Nationaliste. People are calling for a referendum on separation from Quebec. But the parties are waiting on your safe recovery. Or death, she said. We'll get you. You're the hero of the day. You've seen Venus deeper than anyone ever has. Thunder, distant and faint, sounded. Why are you saying this? she asked. The agents of the Gouverneur tried to silence your voice, but they've only given you a larger audience. I'm not even separatist, she said. Everyone will be listening to your voice when you're rescued. Despite the passions, the referendum is no sure thing. The engineering union would almost certainly tip the balance and you sway the Union. You could give us our nation, and pays pour nous. We deserve it. Maybe we do deserve Venus, she said. Who but idiots would deserve a burning land wrapped in poison? You mastered Venus, Renault said. We will tame Venus. I did not master Venus. You are learning the ways of the land, like the first coureur de bois. Coureur de bois. She tasted the phrase. It was an old one from the times of the foundation of Quebec by France, a word to speak of boys and men raised among the Algonquin and Montagnier natives 
to become the bridges between the colonists and the new land. Renault had used a term laden with history, as politicians and demagogues often do, careless of truth. But his words found a resonance in her heart, unexpected and potent. A second radio signal chimed in her helmet, devoid of static and interference. Close, she chilled. The drone had heard her radio. Merde, what is it? Renaud demanded, so, so far away, safe in his plane. I thought I'd lost it, but it's homing in on my radio signal. The drone can get to you? It's probably in worse shape than me, but its tools can break through the walls of the trawler. I've got no way to stop it. Shut down your antenna and radio, Renaud said. I'm not shutting down the radio. It will already have collocated my signal with the electrical noise of the trawler, but I'm not going to die by myself. What are you going to do? Venus, the drone, and I are going to have this out. You just said you couldn't stop the drone. I know. What about the storm? Be quiet, she said. I've got to think. She had little left in her toolkit. She pulled out copper wiring, a small knife, clamps of corroding reinforced plastic, a pockmarked screwdriver, and a small steel hammer. She slitted the wire and stripped away the insulation. The copper wouldn't last long in the rain or even in this chamber, but she only needed it to survive until the storm. For the first time, a rumble, a subsonic vibration, touched her bones. The storm, Venus's final offer in her negotiations, closed on Mary-Claude. She wound the copper wire around the hammer and then tied one of her two parachute cords to it. She swung the makeshift weapon experimentally on its cord, a flimsy thing against a machine. She tied the end of her second, longer parachute cord to the screwdriver and then pounded it deep into the woody flesh between the six buoyancy chambers, all the way to the rigid, charred spine of the trawler, and wrapped it tightly around. Static tingled through her gloves. She tied the cord to her harness. The drone's signal was very close now. She unplugged herself from the trawler's electroplaque, leaving her suit and its heat exchanger to run on the emergency battery. Perhaps an hour. You got a fix on me, Renault. His voice crackled. You're at 33 kilometers and sinking. What's your plan? Just keep the fix and keep quiet. The darkened patch on the top of the buoyancy chamber, the photoreceptor, had a dark filament running away from it, toward the axis of the trawler. She followed this line until the tough vegetable skin obscured it. With her screwdriver and her little hammer, she dug into the flesh, being careful not to dig far enough to break the outer skin of the trawler. She tore, following the filament to where it met five similar filaments, and dove with them down the trawler's spine. She whispered a quick, unaddressed prayer, and severed the trunk of filaments, with the tip of her screwdriver. No more photoreceptors for her trawler. She crawled back to the stoma and put her tools back into their little pouches before she took a hot breath. Then she wriggled her finger into the sealed hole of the stoma. The atmosphere outside hissed in, hot. Her ears and sinuses ached. Her suit crushed against her, and her tank released more oxygen to compensate while the heat exchanger whirred to full. 
almost seven atmospheres of pressure and 170 degrees Celsius. Her suit was rated to five atmospheres and 150 degrees. Engineers understood tolerances. The designers would not wear this suit under these conditions. But here she was. She pushed two hands into the opening, pulling the edge wide to stare down into the subcloud haze. The trawler's cable flexed chaotically in surging winds as crackles of blue-white arced along its length, shedding charge against particulate debris in the air. The trawler was a beautiful machine, a masterpiece of biological engineering, evolved to live and love this terrible world. Marie-Claude wriggled free of the buoyancy chamber and slipped down her cord. The inconstant wind spun her. Her legs and arms swung and jerked as she tried to straighten. She paid out all her cord until she hung twenty-five meters down the trawler's cable. She fluttered in the wind, meters from the trawler's cable, with nothing beneath her for thirty-three kilometers. She tried to grab the cable, coming close to its slick, arcing surface. She wished that this was the most dangerous part of her plan— but it was only one part where she might be killed. And the longer she dangled in the wind, the more potential difference she accumulated relative to the cable. Her wet cord, as a conductor, mimicked the trawler's cable. If she didn't ground herself on the trawler's cable again, when she finally reached it, she would shock herself, possibly into unconsciousness. The storm rumbled again, shaking her bones, she reached for the trawler's cable and almost touched before an arc of electricity leapt between them, shocking her. She snapped her hand back. The drone approached, its lamps lighting the mist from nearby, and the wind still kept her from the cable. She climbed the cord, getting closer to the trawler's cable. She steeled herself as she grabbed it and electricity convulsed her. Displays in her helmet winked out momentarily, with spasming muscles, she slid her way down the shaft, wrapping her legs around it. The repair drone broke through the mist. Two of its three lamps, despite being encased in glass, were dark. Its corroding claw gaped at her. Marie-Claude reached her arms around the cable to tie the end of her second parachute cord around it, the one with the hammer and copper wire tied to one end. Rain whirled around her in gusts, discoloring the steel hammer and speckling the copper with powdery, blue-edged holes. And then the rain stopped, the wind stilled, and the air brightened. She twisted her body to see what was happening. Awe seized her. The haze opened into kilometers and kilometers of clear air. Dark, bruised clouds rimmed the open air, veined with flashes of blue-white lightning, a great vortex a hundred kilometers across. The center of the storm pierced the bottom of the subcloud haze, revealing Venus, unclothed, terrifying, and beautiful. A great plain of dark basalt lay beneath the storm, pocked by high, shiny lava domes, and thirty kilometers beneath the center of the storm's clear air, a flat volcanic mesa shot bright red lava and black sulfuric smoke into the sky. Naked Venus. Terrifying. Beautiful. 
She and the drone were sucked into the quick-moving winds, scouring the edges of the clouds. Blue-tinged lightning decorated the walls of the great column with branching forks. The drone neared from the side, avoiding the trawler's shaft. It could measure electrical charge better than Mary Claude. She swung her hammer at the end of its cord and threw. The hammer dragged the wet parachute cord across a few meters and laid it across the top of the grabbing arm. Electricity cracked across the wet cord. The drone's last light popped, and smoke puffed out. Whatever static charge the drone had acquired in the two days in the deep had not been the same as the trawler's. Now it was. Marie Claude hauled in the drone and lashed it to the trawler's shaft. Thunder rumbled. Deep, bone-touching vibrations quickened primal fears. Her fingers trembled as she opened the access panels of the drone and peeled away burnt acid barriers. Half-melted wiring lay over fuses charred in their brackets. She yanked the surviving wires free by the handful and began wiring the trawler shaft above her to the drone's hydrogen cells. Then she connected the hydrogen cells to the shaft below the drone. Her fingers tingled as a light current passed through the wires. She had to get out of here. The wind whipped the trawler past wrinkled walls of cloud faster and faster. Marie Claude struggled up the cord on aching muscles to the stoma. The clear space opened wider, and the diffuse brightness of the light lent the gloom the tincture of dawn. Venus had spent almost three days testing her. She had survived. Venus respected Marie Claude now, but had not finished with her. That was Venus's message in the gesture of opening the clouds, Marie-Claude would use Venus's spite against her. Her fingers scrabbled at the opening of the stoma, prying, pulling, until she could force her arms in and pull herself up. She kicked hard, fast, not much time. Marie-Claude slipped into the chamber, but did not reconnect her suit to the electroplaque. She untied the parachute cord from her harness. She didn't want to be close to any of the trawler's electrical vascular systems. She huddled against the wall, her knees tucked close to her. Renault? she asked. Renault? Static. Then, Marie-Claude, are you okay? Have you got a fix on me? Yes, it's really faint. Keep the fix. I might need a pickup soon. The deep-dive vehicle won't be here until tomorrow, Marie-Claude, he said sadly. And even then, I don't know if we can get close to the storm. Keep the fix, she said. Thunder boomed closer. Lightning lit the walls of the chamber like a flashlight behind a hand, silhouetting reticulated vasculature. She'd never been so close to lightning on Earth, but she felt, even without seeing it, the Venusian lightning was larger, angrier. Soon the lightning would choose to travel through the stock of the trawler for part of its journey. She didn't know what would happen to all the things that parasitized the trawler as a platform on which they live. They might be burnt to a crisp, cleansing the trawler, or perhaps in the way a forest fire opens ground for new growth, new life might be quickened by the lightning and given space in which to grow. She did not know if she would survive. She was now a seed in a pod, wondering if the casing was strong enough to survive the trial that preceded birth. Distantly, through a wall of static, Renault yelled, "'You're descending!' Are you in a downdraft? Marie-Claude, you're at 31 kilometers and dropping. The world exploded around her. 
painful brightness, bone-shaking noise, heat, sizzling shock seized her muscles. The world became transparent. Fragments of overloaded sensation were simultaneous with a shuddering explosion below. Where the repair drone had been, a bright flash of orange and purple lit the thin floor of the chamber. The trawler shook as if it were about to come apart. Then the world dimmed. Lightning crackled farther away, lighting the walls of her world like new moments of creation. Her muscles trembled from electrical shock, even though she'd been grounded to the trawler and not on the path of any of the current. She felt heavy. The chamber continued to shake in turbulence. She was heavy. It was not the electrical shock. The chamber shook in the turbulence of its own rapid ascent through the atmosphere. It had worked. Igniting the hydrogen cells on the drone had severed the trawler's heavy cable. Renault, she cried. Her antenna icon was red. Her operating system was rebooting. Renault couldn't hear her. She wasn't transmitting her location. Her emergency battery was failing and the trawler's severed shaft could not produce electricity anymore, but the electroplaque might still be charged. Marie-Claude crawled to the hole she dug in the woody flesh of the trawler. Her hands shook, her muscles still spasming from the shock. She clipped her suit to the electroplaque. Some displays lit, but it became hard to think, to focus on what they were telling her. Her chest felt heavy. Her arms and legs ached, the decompression icon winked bright red in the middle of her faceplate. The yellow nitrogen icon flashed beneath it. Danger of nitrogen narcosis, despite the low nitrogen mix in her air tank. Going from six atmospheres to one was lethal. The trawler shuddered as it continued upward, and blackness invaded the edges of her vision. Like a fickle genie, Venus might have granted her wish, but killed her anyway. The Viesau Inquiry Transcript, page 782, 6.35 p.m., Renaud Lenoir, Engineering Supervisor. We found Mademoiselle de Viesau in the charred husk of a trawler at 49 kilometers. Her suit had rebooted on a failing emergency battery. We had initially thought the trawler had only been mauled in a deep storm, but later on we found explosive damage beneath the buoyancy chambers and in the remains of its cable. The chambers were still sealed at an atmosphere and a half. 6.35. Chloe Reverend, Chair. In what condition did you find the Mademoiselle de Vossard? 6.35. Renaud Lanois, Engineering Supervisor. The media reports were accurate, unconscious, extreme heat exhaustion, shock, and nitrogen narcosis. The safeties in her suit had tried to adjust the pressure more gradually, but it hadn't had enough power to do more than a half-job. 6.35, Chloe Riverin, Chair. And then what? 6.35, Renaud Lenoir, Engineering Supervisor. We had no access to a hyperbaric chamber, so the only thing we could do was put her in her own plane and dive as deep as the tolerances would allow. We managed to raise the pressure in the plane to almost two atmospheres for several hours, Everything ached when she woke. The drone of a plane engine sounded, and she was strapped in, reclining in one of the back passenger seats. 
Her suit was off, and bandages covered her arms. Renault knelt, applying an acid burn cream to her leg. Renault, she croaked. The wind outside the plane sounded wrong, and the pilot ahead of them fought violent turbulence. It was dark outside the cockpit window. The plane shook and bumped again. We are going to be riding some rough weather until we can get you safely to higher pressures. Then we can take you home to the Laurentides to a hero's welcome. Your big news, even on Earth. The story of your three days in the clouds has had more hits than any other story on Earth, Mars, or the asteroids. Everyone is waiting to hear what you decide. Les separatistes? she asked. I sure hope your choice isn't nationalist. Neither, she said. Everyone has to choose, he said. This will go to a vote, and there's only yes or no. She shook her head. It hurt. Whether we are a territory of Quebec or the nation of Venus, we're still living in floating cans, losing the race. It doesn't matter who comes first in a losing race. The solutions that work elsewhere won't work here. What do you want? You're in no shape to lead anything right now. We have to learn to live off the land. Smaller habitats have to be more independent, riding deeper in the atmosphere, where we can learn from the life that already thrives here. We have to become the new coureur des bois. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Derek's. Derek, what can I say? A big thank you. Thank you so much. Excellent story. Nice long one just to kind of wallow in and just for kind of forget one's troubles and just go into science fiction perfect. Thank you so much. And Mark, like I say, stepping up the market there. Big bear hug. Thank you so much. So that is Starship Sovas HQ. Look at that, man. Getting it all. <laughs> I knew there would be a cover time. Do you know what I mean? Getting it all muddled up. But that is today's show. But we've got one announcement. I just want to say, first off, though, I'm promoting Jeremy. Jeremy Scales, our, you know, young young assistant editor. Now. Jeremy, Jeremy is now assistant editor with a pat on the back. And, man, he, he's got some kahunats on him. I'd certainly tell you what, because I wouldn't have done what he's done for next week. I wouldn't have had the balls, to be quite honest, to kind of get up there and kind of just keep on pestering. But Jeremy's done. And I'm going to probably say... I guess working a day, probably the biggest writer, genre writer, you know, probably one of the biggest in the world anyways. Do you know what I mean? We've got a story by him. So, and there's a him as well. So there you go. Like I say, Jeremy just kind of pestered and pestered and pestered, you know, like a little terrier on the leg. So that's coming up next week. You know what I mean? Just keep an eye out for it. It'll be fantastic. We're all looking forward to it there. So, mm, there we go. As support the show, yes, we need donations, please. I know, you know, Octagon Technology supported kind of Sovacom, but we still need to kind of keep going on this show. Do you know what I mean? It's vital we do. You know what I mean? To bring you stories like what we've just played by Derek Koonskin and what we're, you know, able to do as well next week. So support the show. That's all I ask. It would be fantastic. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Heroes.
survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu dot com code GLOW. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.